0: So the future must be we talk about supply systems. And once you start to talk about systems, you start to open up the possibility of a richer conversation about what this is, which is ultimately the beating heart of our global economy.
1: Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. My name is Richard Howells. I'm a Vice President for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP, Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. And I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Smythe, and I'm a blogger, podcaster, and marketer in the supply chain area here at SAP. So today we're joined by our guest, Mike Lewis, professor in operation management at the University of Bath in the UK, to talk about how technologies are enabling logistics and last mile delivery. So welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today, and it's so great to have you on the series. So if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself Give some insight into your past experiences, and of course, what you do today.
0: Well, thank you both. You both speak beautifully, quietly, and calmly. So, <laughs> if I start rabbiting on, you must tell me, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm a professor of operations, well, operations and supply management, to use my official designation. And I, I always used to say I'm a recovering engineer, but it's, I've been an academic so long now that I think that's probably a bit inappropriate. But <laughs> I guess I'm an applied social scientist. And what does that really mean? Uh, everything I do in my research activity and my teaching activity for that matter, but is about practice and the intersection between the thinking we do we have the privilege to do because we're not all in operational roles but with the phenomenon we see in practice so I write lots of journal articles (laughs) which you're both sitting on your own in front of a screen a lot of the time as books my operations strategy book I write with a esteemed colleague Nigel Slack in the UK isn't it seventh issue you know so that's the day job stuff that you see the output of but not the sometimes the sweat that goes into it but I guess relevant for this conversation as well as teaching operations and supply and technology management of those kind of subjects, I'm got a long history of being interested in classic operations and supply chain stuff. So the the work that I did with colleagues on Zara, the Inditex, the fast fashion business, it's kind of become the staple for understanding that very responsive integrated operating and supply model. So lots of stuff on that across the public and the private boundaries. And that might become relevant when we start to talk about regulation, perhaps a little bit later. But in recent times, acquisition, integration of digital technologies into these operating models and in particular why that's different to our traditional understandings of technology acquisition because in my day when you worked in a large organization you say you worked in a steel plant as I did then you would have one or two suppliers of the technologies you were interested in they were specialists you weren't but you'd work with them over many years it was quite a lot of black box movement but essentially it was quite a one-to-one or one-to-few relationship today with digital technologies platform independence plug and play it's a kind of blizzard of ideas a blizzard of thoughts and trying to navigate and negotiate those especially when a lot of it is driven by hype Uh, and marketing right it becomes challenging to know what's good what's appropriate what's not so the work that we'll talk about today is is in part about that work we did with Ikea colleagues in ETH Zurich where we looked at how did you engage with in particular drone technology but the lessons of digital technology acquisition into operating models I think are germane across the park but yeah Ikea how they use drones not to deliver stuff but to check their inventory levels in their warehouses. But we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Is that enough? I, mean, I feel like I've talked already for ages. We have this phrase, jack of all trades, master of none. Maybe that's very very UK, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm jack of quite a few trades, and I hope the master of some.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that definition. So let, let's start with a general question, because I think we'll drill down into some of the technologies to enable supply chains after you talk to lots of companies and logistics professionals and what are some of the challenges that they're seeing at the moment
0: well i mean every company that's selling something will have a piece right on their website today telling you what their top challenges are and that they're aligned very closely with the solutions that those companies are selling very often but there are clearly patterns in top of mind but let me try and I split my answer that into two ways. I think this is standard top of mind stuff, and that's not to say it's not important. And in fact, you know, profoundly challenging for ops professionals, supply professionals, trying to deal with day to day reality of their lives. We are in a post pandemic period. It's undoubtedly true that although by some measures, some of that volatility has disappeared. We're still seeing extraordinary imbalances in inventory around the planet. We're still seeing discounting and overordering. You know, the bullwhip effect is back in a big way, really. And that spiralling effect that came from factories shutting, factories opening, relocating, the challenge of the post-pandemic world. We still live in that volatile space. And so that, that's there. There's no doubt that that's there. And then we have increased transportation costs and inflation more generally. And that's really interesting because a lot of the people in leadership positions today in our ops spaces maybe haven't lived through. The kind of inflationary periods before so they're struggling for the almost like a first time with some of the challenges you get from that fuel place volatility I mean you know if you're looking for a place where your fuel impact will be it'll be in your supply chain yeah so yeah. I mean then we have other things in Europe we have a terrible shortage of, of drivers and all, all sorts of things like that I mean the FT ran a piece that's really interesting saying that UK food manufacturers food producers I should say are taking ever more space in the UK warehousing market. So that's putting pressure elsewhere as more people try and compete for limited space because of volatility and shortages. So they're storing more, stocking more to try and cope with some of those buffering. So that sort of inflation spiking, that's having a massive impact. And then the tech space, well, people are still really struggling with visibility tracking comms, all that stuff, right? There's tons of tech out there. There's lots of people selling solutions, some of it great. But that end to end challenge, especially when you draw the end to end really quite widely and go right to the consumer or go right back into the sort of early phases, the growing of raw materials or the digging up of stuff, it gets really quite difficult. And, And that You know, that's a double whammy, because if you don't know what's going on and you're also facing these spiking costs, then it becomes a kind of conflicted. But those are the top of mind today. I won't call them tactical because they're profoundly strategic, but they're there. I don't think many people would disagree. The more existential questions geopolitics. We've got a world fragmenting into dragon bear, right? I mean, that traditional logic that's dominated the last 20, 25 years of global logistics is starting to be challenged by geopolitics in a way we haven't seen again in the last quarter century. But I would add into that profound, genuinely existential question of climate change. We're still in an experimental mode. We're pouring, what, 36 billion tonnes of CO2 a year, into the atmosphere. That's quite a chemistry experiment. yeah. And you know, a lot of that comes from moving stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of that comes from us shifting stuff around the planet. That means we're really facing questions not just about how effective we are in those things, but what the shape of those system, systems, I should say, will look like over the next five to 10 years. And as a micro example of that, empty miles. How long have we been trying in the logistics industry to make sure the trucks move full? Still really hard to do for a lot of the reasons we just elaborated before, but it's a micro example of where there's inefficiency and additional carbon that we don't need to waste, just shifting empty air. So those existential challenges are there. We have to respond to them, but they also have micro tactical logistics operating model implications as well. Mm -hmm. You've had enough. I mean, there's lots more. (laughs) (laughs) We live in interesting times is the curse where we are all today.
2: And unfortunately, it really is. It's almost like a never-ending list. But you speak about the geopolitics, the climate change, sustainability efforts that are hard to reach with all the different challenges. But with that, of course, being post-pandemic, it's only been heightened because of COVID, Mm. constant disruptions. People are now used to it. There's the term permacrisis now where we're just used Mm. to the permanent disruptions, like you said. But moving forward, you spoke about a lot of different technologies that can help these challenges or disruptions. So which technology specifically do you think will alleviate some of that stress and address those challenges moving forward into the future?
0: Well, I mean, if you go through that list, greater visibility is still helpful, right? So any of those technologies that open up and allow us to see, lesson one of my undergraduate class in supply management is if you can't see it, you don't know what's going on. That visibility challenge is profound. And lots of the technology that helps us to do that is clearly important, especially when we start talking then about carbon footprints or labour abuses in our supply chains. or genuinely procuring the things we think we're procuring rather than getting fake and inappropriate materials. Those technologies are there. I, I wouldn't name check individual technologies because I'm not sponsored today by <laughs> a particular tech, even, th- even though I'm going to talk about drones perhaps in a while. It's always for me about appropriate technology. I, I like to be technology agnostic. I think our default position should be we we need it at all. What are we doing that really needs an additional piece of resource? Because, you know, every time you add a technology into the mix, you do add something to the complexity of what you're trying to achieve as a manager, as a leader in an organization. As a system, you become more complex. So there's there's real issues of complexification, if that's a word, or I just made it up, I don't know. As we add more and more technology to what we do. But then you add into that what you know Gartner talk about, the hype cycle, right? Well, everyone's ChatGPT at the moment. If you're not talking about ChatGPT, then you're probably not talking enough about ChatGPT. I saw somebody tweeting on the weekend. And is that going to transform logistics and supply chain? It's certainly going to affect, I would imagine, contracting and contracting adherence and standard terms and conditions. I could see how that would work. So are we going to see those technologies? How will they shape through our systems? They may be ubiquitous, but sometimes these ubiquitous technologies take quite a while to find their own particular applications but then let's think about those other things i was talking about if we move into a two to three degree warming world which i you know brutally <laughs> i can't see how we avoid that that means we have new patterns of weather volatile delivery we talk about tech and we think of it always as the machines in our hands but you know the road is a technology yeah? the bridge is a technology the airport is a technology and those infrastructures are going to come under stress like never before and our logistics systems are just anchored into them So what if your road is flooded? What do you do then? Then if it's the only bridge across the river, it doesn't matter that you've got a digital app telling you the road's blocked. You still can't cross the river. So if it's on fire, I mean, those amazing images from California in the last few years of people driving, as you say, perma crisis, we get used to it. I'll just ignore the flames on either side of the road as I drive my, truck down to downtown LA. I mean, these are extraordinary images. So power, we're putting power and computing into more and more things. Well, as we have intermittency potentially in our power supplies, we can't build enough batteries to give us all of that uh, reliability. Those systems are quite hard to reboot. You know what it's like when you switch a computer system off, how long it takes to come back up. We'll add that to the grid and then a complex supply logistic system around it. That's really quite challenging. So I guess it's about appropriate technology and remembering that everything that makes you strong or gives you an advantage also makes you vulnerable in other ways. Mm. So if you're always aware of the idea of advantage and vulnerability at the same time, you're probably in a much better place. And then I'm technology agnostic. If it's an app that does that for you, then go for it. If it's a drone that does that for you, then go for it. But too often we don't do that. We see all of the great stuff and we sell that but we don't think about the vulnerabilities that come with that. We don't talk enough still in logistics and supply about cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is almost hived off to be somebody else's concern. And then you spend an hour or two with people who work in cybersecurity for a major corporate entity, and they're permanently under attack. It's like a heck of a life they live in. And those are the systems that we're building our entire logistics infrastructure on. So those vulnerabilities, we talk about data integration, open apps, open source AI that we're going to use for all these things, but with that will come new vulnerabilities. So I say it's about appropriate technology, technology when you understand its vulnerabilities as well. Mm-hmm. And when
1: you find that right tech, you can move it forward. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that you say appropriate technology, Mike, because I always think that that hype around technology gets executives to say, oh, we've got this new technology. Let's do a proof of concepts. Let's do a trial with it. But there's no real reason to do it. You've got to start with a business problem and then back into the solution back into the technologies that can and it's not usually not one technology it's a combination of things that can help solve a specific solution
0: and that's kind of what that MIT Sloan version of the journal of operations management paper is about really is that idea of how do you cycle between genuine use cases not because you can cases but use cases where you have a particular business problem and not always business in the sense of necessarily ROI of course it might also be a safety case I mean, a lot of the applications that I'm seeing for drones, it's often a safety. Do you want people working at that height? Do you want them working outdoors around a flaring chimney? These are really powerful uses of this technology because you keep people safe, whereas otherwise they'd have to put themselves in harm's way. So you're absolutely on the money. It's, It's got to be about what's our need? We know that people have been teaching design thinking now for how long, right? You start with a anchoring in that problem statement. What is it you really need to do? And then you pull back the technology as a variable. The trouble is, how much stuff do you buy on a daily basis you don't need? Well, technology is no different. <laughs>
1: I'm guilty of that myself. I'm embarrassed to answer that question. You're good at marketing. That, that, you take that as a compliment,
0: but it also <laughs> introduces dysfunction as well as the sales figures.
2: Well, there comes the point, too, where it's innovation just for innovation's sake. If there's no real purpose behind it, then there's no real problem to solve. The purpose of innovation is to solve the problem at the end of the day. So,
0: Yeah, I have no problem with people set if that's your business, good on you, sell it. But I don't think as a scholar, well, that's a bit grand, isn't it? (laughs) As somebody who's paid to research (laughs) and teach, that actually my job is not to say, Oh, isn't that amazing? You've got blockchain. Let me help you with that. Because it's about saying, okay, objectively, what's the benefit case here? And I think that's our job, right? That's our job to help our students, to help our exec clients, to help the wider scholarly community to approach these things with a critical eye.
1: Let's take an example then. We talk about real life examples. And you mentioned a little earlier around logistics disruptions, roads being flooded. There was an example last year of a bridge over the Mississippi uh, having cracks in it and had to close down for a few weeks. That not only stopped the traffic across that bridge, it stopped the traffic under the bridge. And the Mississippi River is a major channel for moving grains to ports, for example. And I don't think drone's going to be the answer for moving grain, by the way, but... but No, no, but you have
0: that in mainland
1: Europe as well, right? Yeah, the low water levels on the Rhine last year. I mean, all of these are real examples of disrupting our logistics processes and many companies or some companies are seeing the opportunity to leverage drone technology to use the air more than the road or the rails or the rivers. Certain deliveries and other certain use cases within facilities, such as, as you were talking about, doing inventory checks or inspections of areas that are really difficult to access from a maintenance perspective. And we're seeing drones of all sorts. So what are some of the use cases that you're seeing? for the use of drones to solve some of these real-world problems?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, at one level, we have this image, because it's become a kind of toy almost, doesn't it, right? you can buy a toy drone now, that we think of the quadcopter as a sort of default image of the drone. But that's not really where many of the most commercial uses are. They're the classic wing-based engine at the front or the back. Using the advantage of aerodynamics, it's also a lot quieter because you only have potentially one propeller rather than four. And noise is a real issue with a quadcopter in particular. So there are lots of use cases. You're right, not yet in the large-scale heavy lifting The dominant use case for global drones today is people attaching things, cameras, or bombs to them and flying them onto a battlefield, right? So we have to be conscious. That's kind of depressing, but also quite exciting in a funny way because it does show that when pushed into a kind of need case, that people have found use for these technologies. And I I can't but see that that will spill into hopefully less depressing application spaces as well. But you see lots of use cases at the moment. But just before I in on some examples. What you said before is right. It's about business case and use case kind of dancing together. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because it might work doesn't mean it will work. And all of that then needs to be potentially scaled to get some meaningful return on your investment if you're a for profit organisation. So I think that has to be there as a first statement. But where I'm seeing the really viable use cases at the moment are places where regular aircraft can't fly because of weather conditions or economics geography i mean it's not surprised to me that zipline began their experimental work in africa rwanda sub saharan africa delivering medical supplies so where you didn't have an alternative infrastructure so you start with something that's potentially replacing closing a gap that would be not there before. And although there are the firms, you've got Manor operating in Ireland, who've just taken a big chunk of money from the Coca-Cola Investment Fund, the Venture Fund. They've been flying food products, so basically really low value stuff, right, into domestic settings around Dublin. And I think they're planning to move into the US as well. And then you've got Flytrex, I think that's right. They started off piloting in Reykjavik, I mean, Iceland sees itself as a kind of home of innovation, of course, so that's partly why they got the permission to fly. We need to talk more about permissions. They now fly out of Durham and Fightville in North Carolina. And these are basically using slightly bigger quadcopters. They fly over. They try to go reasonably high so the noise isn't too bad. I still think if I had 10 or 11 of those on the street, lowering (laughs) the rope, I might start to get a little bit antsy about it. But every now and again they lower it down. I'm not sure about Flytrex, but I think MANA leave the rope behind. They don't bring it back up because it, it's biodegradable. They're not coming a long way. They're not doing heavy lifting. And this is the really kind of interesting thing. <laughs> They're also operating under pilot regulatory environments. So I'm not 100% sure you don't have to be in line of sight in the US still. So even though the drones can fly autonomously beyond visible line of sight, BVLOS, I think that's that way around, I'm not sure the American examples currently do. Some of the ones in the UK where they're flying, say, to the Isles of Scilly or up into Scotland, they are flying autonomously beyond line of sight. They have special permission to do that because clearly there is security and national security implications of things flying around the place as well. But yeah, so you've got that, some of that small dropping stuff. Even then, they're back to our point about use case, where are they going? They're flying into those kind of exurb type areas, which are quite spread out. So you can DHL, FedEx, the others. So they found themselves a nice little space where they can economically compete with the other delivery agents. So they've done a bit of that, right? Finding the use case. But then if you've got lots of these things flying, I just wouldn't want it over my house. <laughs> yeah so there are maybe limitations to that i do wonder if there's a proof of concept thing going on and they think there are other
1: aspects what about examples Mike, within a warehouse or within a facility Well,
0: I mean, that ironically is where we found a really good use case. So drone delivery hasn't really taken off. And that in part is because of tech, usability, user acceptance and that regulatory thing. But yeah, amazingly, we set off with this amazing PhD student at ETH Zurich, looking at where we were using drones. People were using drones inside buildings, Mm -hmm. inside manufacturing and lots of different use cases, many which fell by the wayside. But we found this example with IKEA, who were doing inventory stock checking. Right. Now, you wouldn't think about it. But then as you start to unpack that with your logic, is it a meaningful use case? This is often at height. It's often done at night. There are labor restrictions on work. There's labor restrictions on safety. And it's a thing that needs to be done continuously because stock checking isn't easy. Hmm. And if you're a firm like IKEA with lots and lots of stock in lots of locations and it's big, so it's not like you know, the warehouses are very tall because it's yes. very big stuff yeah. then suddenly having these drones that take themselves off on a regular basis fly around the warehouse do some scanning do some visual observation come back and report that's a really attractive use case and i think 2021 they first started piloting in switzerland and they're now doing it in 16 locations in fact last week they ran a big promo piece into their social media channels saying (laughs) they painted them blue and yellow now so they're ikea colors no inhuman intervention they fly at night check locations of pallets an update that's a high cost location local restrictions absolutely brilliant so that's a good example right of the use case at play i mean it's a bit more than that they also are very clever in the way they adopt technology. And that was probably what we were more interested in. But it's that clarity of the use case that you can scale to a business case. Anyone who's selling you some sci-fi fantasy, you, you know, you need to come to them with that lens and say, how's that going to help us with a problem? And then how am I going to scale that to a meaningful business case and iterating back and forth between those? Otherwise, you end up just being a showcase for you know, failed silly experiments.
1: And it's at one site not at 16 sites because they haven't been able to roll it out anywhere else after the fact. The other example that I've seen, and my first job out of school was at a, an oil refinery. And there were people climbing up stacks and checking equipment and whatever. And I would imagine that drones with cameras would be a great tool to do inspections in difficult places to get to and yeah. difficult equipment to get to.
0: One thousand percent. And most of the oil majors are doing, if they're not doing actively, they are piloting, uh, emission stack testing, flare testing, because exactly you say, otherwise someone's got to go up there. And potentially it means you might have to shut something down. But yeah, anywhere there's a safety case is a very strong use for drones. Archaeologists trying to discover stuff as well. They would never have had access to vertical flight before. Now they can fly a flight over put an infrared camera on and suddenly discover top of the UK has got too much archeology, span but even so (laughs) you're finding it like you never found it before. Mm -hmm. It's
1: incredible. You talked a little bit earlier around sustainability and sometimes using a drone is economically cheaper, which means it reduces Mm. the financial cost. But I would imagine there's also opportunities to reduce the social cost as well, to reduce the number of miles (laughs) driven, the emissions of certain vehicles. So, are you seeing in logistics that being a deciding factor or a contributing factor to leveraging drones?
0: I haven't seen any evidence of it yet. Both Mana and Flytrex claim greenness as part of the articulation, and I guess you know, like for like, a battery-powered drone delivering one packet to your door compared with a diesel-powered van driving through traffic might might even be quieter if you fly it high enough. But it may well have a lower carbon footprint, certainly won't be generating rubber and all the other things that we often forget about when we're talking about Tesla saving the planet. But I think that idea of the green agenda for drones is harder to argue if it genuinely reduces empty miles or it acts as a substitute like for a helicopter. Right. If it acts as a substitute for a genuine displaces, a higher carbon offer, then possibly, yes, there's a case to be made there. The challenge, though, I mean, digital tech's always like this. You talk about it being a replacement and it becomes an add-on. Yeah, it becomes the additional thing, and that at the moment is what I would observe: is that in most cases, you're, especially in the delivery space, because we've pivoted back to that, right. you'll see it's an add-on until it genuinely displaces. I think it'll be harder to make the case for as a logistics model. It's more carbon friendly. That said, yeah. if you want to inspect remote forestry because that's your carbon offset, and you're worried that people are being, you know, slightly disingenuous about what they're really doing now the privacy and surveillance implications of that aren't particularly exciting to me. But the US military has been using drones for that kind of observation for the best part of 20 years. Right. So it's clearly a functionality there. And I can see how that would start to spread into some of that more transparency type conversation for the extended supply system.
2: Hmm. I think it's incredible because. You spoke about so many different use cases, but I think the biggest thing is it really opens the door and sparks that digital transformation that companies can have. I think top of mind for a lot of executives is being able to be sustainable, resilient, and then having those drones, especially like you said, in inventory management, being able to stay up to date on their numbers, whatever it may be. I think that allows them to have that visibility. Into it that they wouldn't be able to before, and it really does take out that Mm -hmm. manual effort to it. It, in a way. While it may not be related to sustainability from a green perspective, it does at least relate to it in workers' health and safety too, you know, so.
0: Exactly that. Exactly that. And if the drone and its tech is aligned to your understanding of your sustainability offer or your greater resilience, then absolutely it makes sense. I guess my point is just don't expect it to do it on its own. If you buy the weight loss app, you aren't going to lose weight. It's just the tool to allow you to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Unfortunately, for I wish <laughs> it is the truth. It's a tool in your clear vision to achieve those things.
2: Absolutely. Well, while there are a lot of positives that stem from the uses of drones, I think there can also come that learning curve from the regulations surrounding it. You talked about the limitations, especially from data privacy, surveillance, things like that. But especially, at least, my own question is with air traffic control so speaking about the visible line of sight and the autonomous flight what regulations are you seeing in the use of drones and especially how does that vary would you say from company to company what kind of issues or limitations are you seeing from that perspective
0: that's a really good question and Luckily enough, just been awarded a, little, a small grant with some fantastic colleagues, Daniela and Marielle in, in Birmingham and Bristol, who bring transport planning and law perspectives on this because this governance space, as we might describe it, is really quite challenging. You can shut an airport with a single drone, mm-hmm. so they have that kind of ability because you're in that different space. Mm-hmm. And it's a space we haven't traditionally regulated because the air was quite a way up. Mm-hmm. This is sort of near Earth, so that space is something we haven't previously regulated in the same way. Mm-hmm. The sheer Volume potentially of vehicles you might have in that airspace, of course, will threaten to overwhelm systems that were previously designed for you know, large-scale air traffic control. I and mean, it seems like there's lots of airplanes, but there are many, really, if you think mm-hmm. about it. So, yeah, yeah a, regulation really matters. The role that the regulation that a country you're in plays yeah. can often be ex- really significant. And it's no surprise, again, that some of these early long beyond line of sight flights were in countries with limited regulation. Let me put it that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas in North America, the FAA and in the UK, the CAA, they are essentially operating for delivery space in particular, but also for medical and all the rest of it with pilot operations. So you're applying to the FAA, CAA for specific permission to be able to run this thing. And as I say, the the FAA, I think, and I wouldn't be 100% certain on this, so if I'm wrong, I apologise, but are still mandating for most of those drone delivery systems that someone can see them. Mm. You can see why, but it's constraining the potential for innovation. And that's always the balance with this regulatory space from a regulator's point of view and from an innovator's point of view. Innovators will constantly say, don't regulate us. We want to try everything. But of course, if you do overregulate, you will kill innovation. Why would an investor invest in me if I can't ever fly the thing? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's some challenges that I don't think we can just brush away. The first time somebody gets injured or killed by a drone that's doing something it shouldn't have done autonomously, you can imagine the reaction. And I think innovators do appreciate that, that they could reach a point of real near maturity and an inappropriate experiment could kill their industry or certainly push it back five to 10 years very, very easily. So I think it's a dance between regulation and innovation. And if you see them as separate things to be criticised, then you have enormous problems. The challenge for both the CAA and the FAA in the UK is there aren't enough people working in those organisations, ironically. So they're not responsive enough, perhaps, to the rate of innovation that we see in the industry. And that's potentially problematic. Again, for me, you've got to get it right. But it's use case again. So if you're going to have to get permission be very, very clear on why this is a good idea, why it's important, what value it adds. In particular, if it's a gap that you're not getting service previously, if you're just adding more service onto an already very served market, I can see why a regulator might say, mm-hmm. uh, okay, but that won't be our priority. Our priority will be over here. So I think that, that use case stuff that we talked about before comes to the the ops, as the flying people call it, right? You need your concept of operations to be very robust. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not going to get through that regulatory hurdle.
1: Absolutely. So, Mike, we're coming to the end of the podcast, and I want to ask you one final question that I ask all of our guests. So from your point of view, if you had a crystal ball, what is the future of supply chain? That's an open-ended question, isn't it? <laughs> it is an
0: open-ended question. He dropped that one on me. Let me step back from it a second. I think I split my answer into two parts. The first is a bit of a personal gripe, but I thought I always say this to every audience I speak to, so I'm going to say it to you as well.
1: He asked my students. They always
0: go, "Oh, he's always banging on about this." I hate the phrase supply chain. Okay. It, it came out of a particular article in the 80s. I understand why it was there at the time, but it does not describe anything like the complex systems we're talking about. And in fact, in a way, it reduces our understanding of what these things are, I think. They're often heavily, we just talked about it, heavily regulated. Where's that in the chain? And if we take the drone example, we talk about how we're going to measure the impact of things like carbon or labour abuses in the chain or geopolitical content in the chain. They're becoming more regulated rather than Mm. less. So I I think that idea of the chain has reached its limit. So the future must be we talk about supply systems. And once you start to talk about systems, you start to open up the possibility of a richer conversation about what this is, which is ultimately the beating heart of our global economy. That opens a path to my response to your what is the future part of that question, I guess. They will have to be more systemic. We want more visibility. Why? So that we can control them. We know they're going to have to be more circular. We can't keep dropping millions of tons of plastic into the Philippines. You know, we can't keep dropping clothes into the Atacama Desert. That is not sustainable in any meaningful way. We can't keep pumping carbon into the atmosphere. So more circularity needs us to think in systems terms. But above all, above all, I'm afraid to say they have to be smaller and they have to be more accurate. It has to be smaller. We can't continue to ship so much stuff. I'm sorry to say it. We literally cannot. And so consequently, we have to treat the supply systems we do allow ourselves to have to be critical resources of national and international importance and invest in them so they're the best they possibly can be, the most accurate, the most high performing. So that's not a quick answer to your question, but I hope it captures a sense of where I'm at.
1: No, that was great. And I think you're absolutely right about the supply chains needing to be smaller in that the concept of global supply chain, which is both high risk and Not good from a sustainability perspective. Value them more, right?
0: Because you've got this, at the moment, we're externalising all the costs of those supply systems. So they seem like they're cheap, but they're not. They have a cost. We just don't internalise it. So once you start internalising the cost of carbon and the cost of your labour exploitation and the cost of plastic in the ocean and all the rest of it, actually, you've got money to invest. And those supply systems still need it. We still got to eat, We still got to wear clothes. Mm. The game will have to step up a high level. Right. Then they have to be brilliant. Mm. Right. Never a moment where you ship an empty mile. Never a moment where the product goes to the wrong person. That becomes the bar because it's a rare resource at least.
1: Mm. Well, Mike, thanks for a great conversation. It's been really, really interesting. And you're certainly passionate about the topic. Who couldn't be, right?
0: This is how we live and eat. That's how we clothe ourselves. That's right. I mean, it is
1: everything, really. Yeah, once people start working in supply chains, they realise that everything is related to supply chain. I'd like to thank you for a great conversation. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Please mark us as a favourite and you can get regular updates and information about future episodes. But until next time, from Nicole and I, thanks for discussing the future of supply chain.